everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello there. This is Derek Taylor. Uh, if you're watching this, uh, this is the replacement for the live stream I was supposed to do yesterday. Unfortunately, it died again in the middle of our feed. So uh, this is a... Um, um, recording done um, with Zoom actually, and here I have the outline for you up here, and uh, we'll give you the lecture I, was, I gave yesterday. And so let me begin uh, uh, with a prayer, uh, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with the prayer of Saint Thomas Aquinas before study. Uh, I forgot to do this yesterday actually. Uh, o Creator ineffable, who of the riches of Thy wisdom did appoint three hierarchies of angels, and did set them in wondrous order of the highest heavens and who didst apportion the elements of the world most wisely. Do thou, who art in truth the fountain of light and wisdom, deign to shed upon the darkness of my understanding the rays of thine infinite brightness, and remove far from me the twofold darkness in which I was born, namely sin and ignorance. Do thou, who give a speech to the tongues of little children, instruct my tongue, and pour into my lips the grace of thy benediction. Give me keenness of apprehension, capacity for remembering, method and ease in learning, insight and interpretation, and copious eloquence in speech. Instruct my beginning, direct my progress, and set thy seal upon the finished work. Thou who art true God and true man, livest and reignest, world without end. Amen. Okay, without further ado, um, welcome to Controversies in Church History, uh, which is my monthly lecture, um, which I normally give in person, but um, because of the pandemic, I'm having to do remotely. And so the uh, controversial topic I'm talking about tonight is the uh, case of Adgoro Mortaro. And if you don't know the story, the basic facts of it go like this. Uh, in the city of Bologna in Northern Italy, a uh, young Jewish boy named Angara Mortaro uh, was secretly baptized by his nurse. Uh, he had fallen ill and she thought he was going to die. And so thinking uh, of, his, of his salvation, uh, he baptized him uh, without ever telling uh, his parents. Uh, the Mortaro family had six other children. She never revealed this to them. And so, seven years later, when she, she uh, the nurse, uh, confessed this to the Holy Office of the Inquisition in Bologna. The Holy Office, if you don't know, was the uh, legal body that oversaw orthodoxy uh, within the church. And there were, there's one in Rome, the main one, there's other ones outside in the territory of the Papal States, which is what territory they lived in. This was controlled by the papacy because the papacy was both a secular um, ruler, a secular state, and um, uh, religious organization in up to the 19th century. When the inquisitor of the city found out about this, he ordered papal police to remove Edgaro from his home, he was all of six years old by the way, and have him given instruction in the Christian faith. And so on June 23rd, papal police showed up at the Matara family home and told the parents, uh, his mother Mariana, his uh, father Momolo, that he was be to be removed without telling them why. Uh, immediately, Mariana fainted, and the six other Mortara children immediately begged the policemen not to do not to do this. And so, for 24 hours, two police stayed there while relatives frantically went to the authorities and tried to find out what was going on. And um, they stood guard over Edgar for 24 hours till finally when the po police returned the next day uh, and his father Momolo handed him over to the police to be taken away uh, when both Edgaro and the guards, his guards who stood watch over him 24 hours were both crying. Momolo released his son to them, took them to the Vatican and, it's, and uh, Momolo himself fainted uh, as a result of all this. So, this story, which happened in 1858, why are we talking about it now in 2020? And this has to do mostly with one uh, historian, a named David Kurtzer, who is a uh, historian, I believe, at Brown University. And um, he wrote a book, a uh, best-selling book in 1997 called The Kidnapping of Edgaro Mortara, in which he relayed this uh, tale. And... Um, he published this partly because in, uh, at the time, in the late 1990s, the uh, Pope, uh, who was the head of the church at the time in uh, 1858, 
who basically allowed this and uh, made this uh, removal of uh, Edgar from his family possible, um, was being uh, in the process of being beatified, which he was, Pope Pius IX in the year 2000. And he wanted to draw attention to the case. Uh, lots of Jewish groups, because of this, opposed the edification of Pius IX. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to this to my my group of uh, uh, group that I usually uh, ha um, give these talks to is because this uh, book had been picked up by Steven Spielberg, and last I checked, it was still uh, uh, in uh, scheduled to go into production at some point, with I believe Oscar Isaac's uh, attached to the attached to the film. So uh, Hollywood's going to get their hands on this uh, story. Uh, if they do, uh, given Spielberg's notoriety, it'll get a lot of publicity. So I'm going to give you guys some background on this. The other reason we're talking about now is that in 2016, and Garo Mortar, who was then, after he was taken from his family, raised in the Vatican by Pius IX, and later on became a priest, um, wrote memoirs later in his life, uh, which were published in 2016 in Italy. And this caused a small sensation, um, partly because the memoirs seemed to portray him as being someone who, and he was later in life, someone who supported Pius IX, but um, critics who uh, took a look at this edition of his memoirs noticed that they seemed like they'd been altered uh, to present his removal from his family as being not nearly as traumatic as perhaps it was uh, among them David Kurtzer. Um, and so this led to, this led to in 2018, the publishing of a review of the, these memoirs in the journal First Things, in which a priest, a uh, uh, Dominican priest named Romano Cesario, um, defended uh, Pius IX's actions on the grounds that he was defending the nature of baptism um, by taking Agar away from his family, uh, that baptism basically means that the church has supernatural obligations toward the baptized, and since the parents would not raise him as a, a Catholic and would remain Jewish, they had to take him away, essentially. And this, uh, this review caused a firestorm amongst a very small circle of conservative intellectual Catholics and to a lesser extent non-Catholics. And uh, in fact, the editor of the uh, First Things, Rusty Reno, issued apology and condemned uh, uh, Father Cesario's um, position. And so there's been a little kerfuffle about this, so I thought I'd give you guys some background on this. Um, talk about why Pius IX did what he did, and just bring up some general questions about the relationship between uh, the Jewish people and uh, the church in light of this case. A couple of preliminary remarks before I get into the actual uh, talk. One, I'm going to use the word liberalism a lot in this talk, and by liberalism I don't mean what I mean in a modern setting in America, you know, big government, progressive, all that stuff. I mean, essentially what I mean by 19th century liberalism, which tended to want to have a, you know, constitutional, constitutional, you know, constitutionalism, individual rights. Um, but in particular, in the early 19th century, uh, it means more or less what it meant uh, coming from the original Spanish term, liberales, which means wanting to have a secular state free of church influence. Um, that's effectively what I mean when I use that term, unless I specify something else. And then finally, um, we're talking about relationships between the church and the Jews in the 19th century. I want to make a distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Um, anti-Judaism is basically, you could say, prejudice uh, or enmity against Jews for religious reasons, that is for rejecting Christ. And the fact that the uh, Jewish uh, high uh, elders put him to death uh, in the gospel, something like that, for specifically religious reasons, um, which is different from anti-Semitism, which is primarily uh, based on ethnicity uh, and ethnic hatred of, uh, of Jewish people, which uh, again, for the most part, as it exists, uh, and what I'm gonna argue is that for most part, uh, Pius IX, insofar as he has uh, prejudice against Jews. They're mostly of the first type. They're anti-Judaism, not necessarily anti-Semitic. So where do we begin? We begin with the relationship between the papacy and the Jews before we get to um, the actual uh, event itself. Just some brief words. Um, the long story, but uh, long history between the Jews and uh, Christians. But it just specifically with the papacy, uh, in the Middle Ages, for the most part, um, the papacy never undertook any sort of 
um, attempts to convert Jews. Um, uh, the, uh, the church in the Middle Ages, uh, and Pope, the church in general in the Middle Ages, repeatedly emphasized the um, the idea that the Jews were not to be molested, that they were not to be, if they were allowed to practice their faith uh, effectively as long as they obeyed the laws. Um, the church in the Middle Ages essentially viewed Jews as a sort of um, uh, subject minority to a Christian world, and as long as they, as long as they did weren't, as long as they were um, duly, duly submissive, uh, they were to be allowed to to um, uh, basically uh, live on their own. Uh, an idea that goes back to Saint Augustine of Hippo, Gregory the Great, um, sort of as a, a a living example of people who had rejected Christ, basically, but they were not to be molested. This didn't always work out in practice. Uh, sometimes bishops, occasionally popes, would actually protect them from say, popular violence, but there was no real attempt to forcibly convert them or coerce them into becoming Christians. The big change happens, and things change a little bit at the end of the Middle Ages, we won't have time for that, um, is in the, uh, after the Reformation of the 16th century. Um, because after this, um, starting in the 1540s, the relationship changes greatly in Rome. Uh, the papacy, which had been, again, the medieval church, sometimes it gets a bad rap. The medieval church was relatively tolerant of, of you know, diversity to a certain degree in the Middle Ages. I say relatively. And, um, but after the Reformation, with the great trauma that it caused, uh, the feeling um, uh, came entrenched in the papacy and other places in the church that Jews were an anomaly in a Christian society. and They needed to sort of somehow uh, deal with this in different ways. And so, in 1543, um, in Rome, uh, they founded the first House of Catechumens, and the House of Catechumens was essentially a place where you would, um, people would be taken, Jews who would be taken to be uh, baptized, uh, who wanted to convert. And in fact, it was, uh, um, there were uh, means used to pressure them into, into doing this. Um, uh, from the 16th century, Jews were actually taxed in order to pay for the upkeep of this house. Uh, and in fact, um, after 1555, they're put into a separate area, the ghetto, uh, closed off from Christians. In, uh, at the end of the set, by the end of the 16th century, they are forced to listen to conversion sermons every Sunday. Um, preachers will come to the ghetto and preach to them and try to convert them. And um, in fact, there aren't many actual baptisms uh, until you get to the 17th century. And there are several thousand, basically, uh, from the 1630s up to the French Revolution in 1789, um, a little over 2,400 in Rome. And uh, most of this meant a lot of times you would have, as far as I'm aware, relatives who had been baptized who, for whatever reason, wanted, um, you know, other relative to, you know, be baptized. If you're looking at motives, by the way, one of the reasons you might want to is to get out from some of the, the legal disabilities that you suffer um, in that state. Um, and so what will happen is, say, a brother-in-law, there are actually cases we have of records of this, a brother-in-law taking um, uh, his sister's child and getting them uh, taken to the house of catechumens, be baptized. We have legal records of people trying to get their, their children back. Um, in other words, it's not terribly effective. There's a, only about three or 4,000 Jews in Rome. And I think it's about, 50, I think it's about 15 a year, I think, the numbers. I don't know if I have the numbers down here. Um, but it did happen. Uh, up until uh, the French Revolution, which, long story short, changed all this. <clears throat> um, the coming of um, uh, reform to Italy in the uh, person of Napoleon, uh, uh, not only conquers Italy, changes the laws there, um, eventually annexed the papal states, uh, will do away with a lot of this, not totally all of this. Uh, after 1810, when he does annex the papal states, um, Jews are no longer uh, tasked with contributing to the House of Catechumens. However, when Napoleon is defeated in 1815, um, the Roman ghetto is restored, uh, laws um, uh, limiting, um, restricting Jewish you know, movement into the Christian parts of the city, re restricting their entry into professions are restored. And um, in general, anti-Judaism re remains fairly widespread in the hierarchy uh, during the 19th, early 20th centuries. Now, what about Pius IX himself? Uh, before becoming Pope, he didn't really have uh, much to do with uh, Jewish people. Um, Pius, uh, was a, uh, Pius IX was a, a bishop in the city of Imola uh, in Italy, and the only time he basically had any contact was when he was actually ordered to remove a Jewish child from their home on the orders of the Holy Office, and that's about it. 
Um, but he was, this is one of the themes I'll talk about here, he was popular initially with, um, I'm using that term specifically, Italian liberals initially when he becomes Pope in 1846. Uh, the reason is he was kind of had a, had a reputation, not really deserved as a reformer. Uh, he put together a plan for modernizing the papal state, um, which earned him credit with these liberal types, nationalists and liberals. Uh, but was very modest, uh, and in fact was not quite indicative of what his mindset actually was. Um, when he becomes Pope, he does um, um, make some sort of charitable uh, gestures towards Jewish people in Rome. He um, ends, but it's an end to the uh, mandatory conversion sermons. Uh, he makes efforts to ameliorate overcrowding in the ghetto by allowing Jews to settle outside of it. Uh, he abolishes internal passports. You have to have a pass to go from the Jewish quarter, the ghetto outside of it. Um, uh, he put an end to sort of, there were certain rites that happened during carnival and stuff like this were degrading to Jews. He, he got a, did away with those. Um, and so in his mind, this was basic. In his mind, this was, these were acts of Christian charity. Um, but he did not involve, envision altering their legal status. And I'll come back to this, but... Uh, he believed the Jews should not be persecuted, but should remain dependent on Christian charity. Uh, and he never deviated from this belief. Um, and in fact, all people who were sort of lauding him at the beginning of his, his, uh, his reign probably should have got a hint from his uh, encyclical, which he uh, issued in 1846, in which he attacked things like liberalism and uh, modern thinking and religious pluralism and indifferentism and all these things that he didn't like about the modern world. The encyclical does not mention the Jews, but it, it pretty much goes to his um, to his way of thinking, which is that um, in a Christian state, there should basically only be one um, religion recognized by the state and given privileges. And it's essentially a confessional way of looking at um, uh, um, uh, a church state. And this is essentially a state he rules. Having said all this, um, um, Pius was not immune to popular pressures. And in uh, March of 1848, a couple of years after he becomes uh, Pope, he'll actually uh, accede to popular demands and issue a, a new constitution for the papal state, which will do things like, um, you know, grant some offices for laymen uh, in the state. It was almost wholly by clerics at that point. This is still, by the way, something people who want to reform the Vatican talk about. We have more laymen work in the Vatican because it was a very clerical dominated um, government they had. Um, this constitution granted equality before the law, but stated that full rights were still only accorded to Catholics. This led to greater demands. In fact, during Passover in 1848 in April, a crowd of Catholic and Jewish Romans um, tore down the gate to the Jewish ghetto, uh, which Pius allowed to happen. He didn't sick the police on them. Soon the gates of the ghettos and the rest of the cities of the papal states were torn down as well. Um, later that, uh, that year in July, the uh, uh, Jewish community in Rome asked for a clarification about um, about the constitution of um, um, what it meant by you know having full equality but not only having Catholics have full rights and the government actually declared that Jews did actually enjoy full civil rights uh, in papal states um, and so one of the things that happens uh, and this by the way wasn't necessarily his plan he was sort of going with the flow at this point um, but he did not really have any intention of, um, of altering their subordinate status. I mention this because the um, Mortara case occurs in the midst of uh, a major change in Italy, which is the Risorgimento. If you don't know what that means, that means the, uh, it literally Risorgimento means uh, revival or um, something like resurrection of a unified Italy. It's what it means. And uh, the papacy would be caught in the middle of this. And just a couple of words about Italian nationalism. <clears throat> um, nationalism was stirred up by the French Revolution. And in the 19th century, we had people who desperately wanted to have a unified Italian state. It hadn't been a unified Italian state since the Roman Empire. And one of the more important um, radical types, political and intellectual, is a man named Giuseppe Mazzini um, in the 1830s. Uh, revolutionary, uh, founded many secret societies, including one called Young Italy in 1834. Uh, all with the goal of pursuing political activity um, to unite Italy in a republic, particularly for Mazzini, who, was, um, uh, who despised the papacy, 
uh, one freed from papal authority. And his nationalism was very much of a sort of uh, mystical, almost mystical source, almost a religious form of nationalism. And um, the people as a counterweight rather than say the papacy, um, but a, a, a real um, threat to notions of a confessional state like the one Pius, uh, which is all Pius knew. Um, Same thing to note about this is that the nationalism was, um, and this drive for unification was backed by, um, and most liberals were, a largely movement of the middle classes, which was not very large in Italy in the 19th century. It was not very economically developed. Um, you're talking most about the professional class of lawyers, doctors, businessmen, um, professors, stuff like this. Um, most of whom remain Catholic, unlike Mazzini, but Mazzini, but um, they yearn for greater freedom, freedom and equality. And in particular, most of these middle class people wanted to get out under the political tutelage of the papacy. Um, they wanted um, his interference to be over with, essentially. Uh, this is why they were attracted by ideals of nationalism and liberalism. Uh, and then finally, one last thing about this. Um, nationalism gained the support of Jewish people uh, in the Resorgimento. Pretty much, and again, for obvious reasons, there was no, no really no other way for them to better them better their status uh, other than by joining revolutionary movements which they did um, they were uh, prominent in young italy with mazzini he had good relationships with them um, and uh, people like cavour i'll get to count cavour in a second who was the prime minister of one of the main italian states behind unification was also on good terms with the jewish communities of italy uh, but in particular nationalism um, with its emphasis on the equality of all citizens um, uh, was attractive um, because it meant, of course, no religious distinctions. Uh, and I say this because later on in the 19th century, as, um, as secular anti-Semitism becomes more prominent, this will, this will change. But the point is in the early 19th century, as a sort of you know, partner in wanting to dismantle the confessional state, there was more symbiosis between nationalism uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Jewish communities. Which brings us to the turning point in uh, Pius's career, more generally speaking, which is the Revolution of 1848. Um, um, what happens in that year is, if you don't know, revolution breaks out in France, kind of begins to spread to Italy, uh, in the uh, Piedmont, and um, in Piedmont, Sardinia is the actual, that's the state that's going to make unification happen. It's a state in northern Italy, eventually gains Sardinia, but it's in northern Italy, um, it's capital of Turin. And, um, the revolution there uh, brings a liberal constitutional monarchy to power where it has a real parliament it has a constitution and it'll become a model in some ways for the rest of italy um, and for the uh, eventual italian state that gets formed um, what happens is this leads to um, um, uh, revolutions elsewhere in italy all of a sudden there are greater demands for greater you know things like new constitutions greater freedoms but also and i didn't mention this at the part in this part um uh, Northern Italy is, parts of Northern Italy are being governed at this point by, by the Empire of Austria. Uh, why? Because after the wars against Napoleon, uh, Austria was made sort of the power in that region by the Congress of Vienna, powers were met after that war was over in 1815. And um, they had been the governor of um, uh, parts of uh, Northern Italy. Uh, they were also the, the main ally of the Papal States, um, which is why, um, um, Pius IX did not want to go to war with Austria, which in Italian nationalists in Italy uh, wanted him to do, wanted to, wanted to go to war with Austria to kick them out. Again, they're foreigners, want to get them off Italian soil. Um, they wanted the post backing. And uh, Pius suggested instead of going to war, a, a creating a League of Italian States to deal with the question of unification. Um, the Kingdom of Piedmont, not, not wanting to do this, I'm wanting to. Uh, give up its leadership of uh, the, the uh, peninsula, uh, refused this and uh, went unilaterally to war against Austria. When Pius refused to go to war against Austria, partly because they were his ally, partly because they were a Catholic state, um, this made him the enemy of uh, nationalists who wanted an end to Austrian rule. And so, because things were getting to get dicey in Rome, that virus revolution was spreading there, um, he called in a uh, layman, uh, a former French ambassador to the Holy See, and then Count Rossini to try to form a new government, try to come up with a new plan. He was, Rossini was a liberal. Um, 
but he never got the chance because it spooked radicals in Rome who on November 15th of 1848 uh, assassinated uh, uh, Rossini, uh, stabbed him to death, uh, which caused a revolt the next day. Um, nine days later, uh, the Pope fleed the uh, city of Gaeta. And um, uh, shortly thereafter, a uh, republic uh, was declared from Rome. Um, with uh, one of its leaders was none other than Giuseppe Mazzini, who had made his way there from exile, was given uh, Roman citizenship, became one of the governors of this new revolutionary state, which only lasted a few months. Um, they issued a constitution, which immediately granted religious toleration to all religions. Uh, the constitution and the republic were condemned immediately by Pius. Um, but the, the upshot of all this is the Pope eventually is restored to the Papal States in 1849, a few months later, by uh, the French, uh, who after their revolution uh, are going to be ruled uh, by a man named Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. That's right, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. And that this will be other, the other main ally that the Papal States have at this point. And if you're wondering, by the way, why they need, uh, need allies, the Papal States don't have their own armies. In the past, in the Middle Ages, the Papal States was wealthy enough to sometimes hire their own armies. Uh, at this point, they're dependent on um, uh, protection uh, from uh, these other states. Now, in the broader sense, what happens after that revolution where, you know, um, one of his uh, ministers has been assassinated, priests have been put to death during the Roman Republic, uh, this basically turns Pius IX permanently against anything modern. Uh, he becomes a total reactionary. Um, and this means turning back the clock, of course, on the freedom granted to Jews after the revolution. When he comes back, um, restoration of Jewish legal inequality is more or less restored. Uh, the ghetto remains up. Uh, in principle, the, the uh, restrictions against employment and professions and stuff like this are restored. Um, Jews still appeal to him to, um, um, to uh, do something about their grievances. He will appoint a commission to study them in 1855. Um, in practice, Jews could still more or less live where they wanted. Um, and in fact, uh, it, it's, it's a strange thing that the Jews were to be legally subordinate. Um, they were the only other religion allowed in, in the Papal States. Um, every other, um, every other, only, I think there were four synagogues in Rome in the Jewish quarter. That was it. There were no other houses of worship besides Catholic churches in Rome. Um, but from Pius's point of view, um, the only thing he's willing to grant them were legal exceptions to their subordinate status here and there. Was never willing to go the whole way and give them more equality. And the reason for this is, um, again, in his mind, where he grew up, um, the idea is sort of one of, if you know the phrase, uh, supersessionism. The idea is that with the coming of Christ, the Son of God, this has been the fulfillment of the old covenant. Therefore, um, the Christian church is the new Israel, whatever. It's, it's superseded the old Israel. Uh, and therefore, uh, the Jews, because they've rejected Christ, um, in his mind, can't be put on the same level of equality in a civic sense with Christians. It would undermine, in his mind, that notion of uh, the Christian faith being um, the true one, basically. Um, and he can never quite sever civic equality from um, uh, spiritual things in his mind. Um, part and parcel of that inheritance uh, from uh, an earlier period and from a long history in the church, which goes back way before this. After the revolution, um, as I mentioned before, the, um, uh, the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, takes uh, a leadership, uh, aggressive leadership of this uh, push to unify the, the uh, Italian peninsula led by um, Camillo Benso, I think it's really, Count Cavour, who becomes the major politician responsible for this. Uh, he's the one uh, who founds a journal called the Risorgimento, which is where we get the, the term from, in which uh, he um, um, advocates for um, unification along more or less anti-clerical lines. Not necessarily anti-Catholic, he remains Catholic, but um, he is a liberal. He's opposed to clerics having any temporal authority whatsoever. And um, this is where you get his phrase. This is his phrase, a free church and a free state. Uh, when Piedmont gets its liberal constitution, he'll eventually become a minister, uh, uh, elected parliament, become prime minister. Uh, and in the 1850s, he begins with the help of radical leftists. He's not a leftist. He begins passing um, secularization laws, uh, laws designed to 
nationalize church property of you know convents and monasteries um which are deemed to be um useless to the common good as they all they do is pray essentially they're contemplatives uh he'll um, um seize their property and get rid of them this way this was done by the way in the french Revolution. this is where wherever the revolution comes the french revolution this is the sort of thing happens uh, while at the same time passing laws that um removed education from the realm of the church so taking church property he's cutting off um you know, think of Pius, not Pius the Ninth hated <laughs> Cavour and, and, and Piedmont for this, uh, undermine the church's ability, of course, to, you know, pass on the Christian faith, basically, um, which, of course, they dominated education before that, in uh, the Middle Ages and later on. Uh, and even an idea, what, you know, liberals believed in constitutionalism, you know, rule of law, all this stuff. Um, in the parliamentary, I'm laughing because in the parliamentary elections a few years after the after these laws are passed in the mid 50s, um, the uh, elections of 1857 in Piedmont returned um, a fair number of uh, priests, uh, apparently mostly people who were fairly conservative, and so uh, Covura worried about this, worried about the effect it would have on his reforms. Uh, actually, had them uh, the elections of, of many of these priests investigated for fraud and had them invalidated. <laughs> uh, so again, I'm, I'm saying this just to, you know, uh, I'm laughing, but um, uh, what we're getting at here is of course, uh, what are the bounds of state power? And what can it do? And is a religious state really that much worse than a secular one? The, the usual, uh, we'll get to the usual answer for a liberal in the 19th century is yes, you know, clericals, all despotism, you know, that sort of thing doesn't happen here. And you know, that's, that's, that's not quite true. Um, for Cavour, even though he was a very, very skillful politician. In any case, you had this rivalry between um, uh, 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 papacy, papal states, and uh, uh, Kingdom of Piedmont, which is all the backdrop to the Mortara uh, case. So they come back to 1858 in the middle of all this stuff. Uh, the family finds out eventually uh, why, they didn't even tell him initially why it had taken him away. They find out that their nurse had baptized him without their permission. And so in response to this, they had to make a legal appeal, send a legal brief to the Holy Office of the Inquisition in Rome. And um, again, I can't stress this, the Papal States really was a state. The Inquisition was not some sort of torture chamber. It was a legal body. And they were very, very much sticklers for legal procedure and all this stuff. And so um, with the help of rabbis in Rome who had long familiarity with these, these Vatican legal procedures, um, put together a legal brief, um, basically stating why um, they should have the child returned to them. Uh, and in the, the brief, they actually appeal to the writings of Thomas Aquinas, who, if you don't know, famously um, basically said that no, forced baptism shouldn't, you shouldn't forcibly baptize um, uh, um, non-Christians, basically. Not, you shouldn't force people to believe, you shouldn't force people to do this. And um, uh, rabbis in Rome, Jews, Jews had, had enough experience with the legal system to know this because of prior, prior uh, experience. Although I should say again, one of the reasons why this touched off such a, a firestorm as we'll get to in a moment is that after uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, this sort of thing didn't happen that much anymore. And so it was rare by 1858. It's one of the reasons why it caused um, consternation. Um, and they made three arguments in the brief. Um, Come all, all of them coming from Aquinas. One, that it's not the, the custom of the Catholic Church to baptize children of, children of unbelievers against their will, a will of the parents, I should say. Secondly, the church has no authority over the children of unbelievers. And then third, baptisms of uh, non-Catholics against the parents' uh, will uh, are invalid. And so those are the three arguments of the, uh, of the parents. Eventually the Holy Office responded basically saying, well, no, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, um, um, the child was no longer an unbeliever because he'd been baptized. Uh, and that's, uh, they, they claim the baptism was lawful. And uh, by the way, if you don't know, I'm not a theologian, so, um, so take my, everything I say with a grain of salt, and I, of course, submit my, my opinions to the authority of the church in these matters. Yeah, the layman can baptize people in emergency uh, situations. You don't necessarily need to have a priest to do it. But the point was, the um, uh, Holy Office said that even if the baptism was unlawful, it was still valid. In other words, say it shouldn't have been done, but now that it's done, 
baptism imparts a supernatural character. Um, it requires that um, the, the child now has supernatural rights. Uh, he has a right to the Christian faith. You can't take it away from him. Uh, therefore, no, no longer an unbeliever, and therefore Vatican had a right to take him from the family and raise him as a Christian. Now, as I said before, um, all this was pretty much, again, these, these, these laws have not been enforced much over the past several decades since the Napoleonic Wars. So the question was, why did Pius let this happen? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that uh, he insisted um, that he was bound by church law. Church canon law uh, at the time stipulated this, the, that you had to raise someone Christian if they were baptized, because even if they were, it was against the parents' will. Uh, this had happened, it's only been incorporated into canon law in the 1740s by the Pope at that time. Um, and um, again, this takes some more explaining because it is obviously a controversial thing. Um, Pius thought it was part of his duty as a priest. Um, one of the things about Pius is that he put you know, he, he saw himself as a priest first and a ruler second. He thought he was doing his duty as a priest to give this, you know, child, the you know, uh, the light of Christ, the true faith by doing this. And that trumped um, the rights of the parents to raise their own child. Um, the Vatican, including Pius IX, claimed the child did not want to return um, to, uh, to his family. The family, of course, vigorously disputed this and he was miserable and he didn't want to go back. Um, uh, even further, you know, talking about why he did this, you know, the question remains, okay, why at this time even do this? Why if it hasn't been, you know, for decades, kind of a thing that hasn't happened hardly? Um, hard to think, and Pius never said this, Pius always claimed, uh, that's the title of that fourth part there, uh, non bosumus, that means we cannot. Every time he was asked to relent and intervene, he said, we cannot. Um, he could not, you know, go against his duty as a Christian pastor of souls and do this. Um, even though it had not been the practice of the church to do this until the 16th century. So um, uh, I think part, at least part of the reason is he felt besieged in Italy. Again, they're taking away, you know, all this stuff in the church and, you know, you have secular liberals trying to undermine the faith by taking over education from them. This is, it feels a little bit like, at least unconsciously, he's um, trying to assert control by asserting this uh, in this situation. Again, he never said that himself. That's my interpretation of it. Well, when this got out, and it took a couple of months, news out of this outside of Italy, it caused an international scandal, even among uh, papal allies. Um, uh, of course, uh, Piedmont, Sardinia, uh, and Cavour sent a protest demanding he release the boy to his parents. Um, but also the emperors of France and Austria, Louis Napoleon, um, and, uh, and uh, Franz Joseph of Austria also uh, sent um, sent pro official protests uh, asking him uh, to reverse his decision. Um, and pretty much uh, the press in France, Britain, America, and other liberal countries, if you want to call them that, uh, had a field day with this. Um, they saw in the Mortara case evidence that the uh, papal state was the relic of medieval times, that, uh, you know, papal state was the sort of worst government that ever existed. Um, and that's for the most part, their interest seemed to be this. One uh, Jewish historian uh, writing about the secular press uh, in the reaction to this case uh, writes, quote, generally, however, the fact that Edgardo was Jewish seemed less important than what was seen as an outrage against humanity and the modern world, unquote. Um, liberals despised uh, the papacy and especially its temporal power. That bothered them a lot as being just sort of um, on the wrong side of history, to use a contemporary phrase. Uh, and also this sort of uh, sealed the fate of the papal state to a certain degree because um, shortly thereafter in July of 1858, Cavour made a deal with Napoleon in exchange for some territory in Northern Italy. Um, Napoleon agreed to, bring, uh, to give uh, military aid to Piedmont uh, in their upcoming war they were planning to fight Austria again and try to kick them out permanently. And, um, and this seemed to have been, um, and there's some people who think this was prompted by the actual Mortara affair. Um, and certainly this is an off-quoted uh, quotation from one of his letters. Um, the emperor, I mean, um, Louis Napoleon took advantage of this to try to aggrandize himself at the pap papacy's expense. Louis Napoleon 
the Costco version of Napoleon, uh, was kind of a cynical, wily guy. Uh, in any case, Cavour, this is Cavour, Count Cavour, writing about the Mortara affair. And uh, I'm quoting here, quote, uh, the emperor, that means Louis Napoleon in France, the emperor has been delighted with the Mortara affair, as with everything that may compromise the Pope in the eyes of Europe and in the eyes of moderate Catholics. The more charges that can be made against him, the easier it will be to impose on him the sacrifices called for by the reorganization of Italy. We must make the most of all the emperor's efforts to bring the Pope to follow a more reasonable political line. By existing with regret, with regret that the Pope's conduct shows to be absolutely impossible that he should keep the temporal power outside of the walls of Rome." Unquote. Not surprising, Cavour wanted to use this to um, basically swallow up the papal state, <laughs> which is we'll see in a moment if it did. Um, one other thing to note about this, this affair is that uh, it got a lot of attraction in Britain. And interesting because the British government had no real interest at stake in this. And they didn't actually send troops or anything, but both Tory and liberal governments from 15, uh, 1858 to 1861 were um, watched events very closely in Italy and mainly for ideological reasons. Um, they, uh, they, just, they despised the papacy, especially the papal state as well, as much as Italian liberals did. Um, uh, according to some of the, uh, both, uh, uh, I'm quoting from uh, uh, sources here, uh, one of their ideological goals, quote, was the, to rid Italy of the thraldom of ecclesiastical and political domination, unquote. Uh, and they regarded the, the papal states as, quote, the plague spot of Europe. Um, their goal was to, quote, pr uh, promote the moral and material progress of mankind, unquote, by replacing the papal states. Uh, in other words, they were, the British were, uh, at this point, a, a liberal country, essentially. Um, and there were um, ties between uh, Count Cavour, who spent much time in, in London, studied Parliament there. Um, the Constitution, actually, in Piedmont was modeled after the British Constitution. Giuseppe um, um, Mazzini had spent time in London. Most continental uh, radicals had spent time in London in the 19th century, including, by the way, in 1848, of course, Karl Marx. Um, um, they all had, uh, and Cavour kept his allies in the British government informed of his activities. And they were diplomatically and morally supportive, if not anything else. They actually did at one point instruct their ambassador to uh, tell the papacy that they supported French protests, although they never, never actually issued um, any formal protest themselves. Probably a wise thing to do on their part, but um, there actually were at that point, Jews have been emancipated in Britain for how long, but uh, maybe only a few years, but there were, I think, two or three uh, Jewish MPs in Parliament, at least by background, um, Benjamin Disraeli, uh, Lionel Rothschild, and one other whose name escapes me. Uh, they apparently never bring the case up um, in Britain, but Britain definitely uh, is enjoying. They, they want to see the papal state go under for ideological reasons, uh, for ideological reasons. And then finally, we come to international Jewish opinion. Um, and of course, there. Once this gets out, there's an outcry, especially in the countries where Jews have been emancipated legally: United States, France, and um, rabbis across Europe send, you know, protests and 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 pleas, asking um, Pius to release the boy. And um, in particular, the Jewish community in uh, Britain sends a. Um, a philanthropist and entrepreneur named Moses Montefiore, who's actually really important uh, in the history of um, 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 the Jewish community in Britain in the 19th century, uh, sent him to go to Rome to try to talk Pius IX out of this. And when he got there, um, Pius IX refused to see him. Uh, basically, Pius, at this point in 1859, thought that the, um, thought that the case was closed. Um, he had his Secretary of State, a uh, man named Cardinal Antonelli, um, go meet with him instead. Uh, and in fact, there were actually plans at one point, um, there was actually a, a, a harebrained plan at one point de uh, developed among, um, I think, a former military officer who had served, I want to say, in, I can't remember which army, but uh, uh, among Jewish uh, people in Britain to actually go kidnap uh, Edgar back. There were several attempts at this, and nothing ever came to it. Um, <clears throat> And um, in any case, you have, um, because of this, the formation a few, a few years later of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which was a, a Jewish uh, organization uh, devoted to, quote, the defense of Jewish rights wherever so attacked, unquote. Um, this galvanized, um, you know, increasingly, and again, they're literally emancipated across Europe 
to try to defend against uh, uh, things like this. Uh, and in fact, I don't know if this is direct, but I don't know if this is related to the Moratara case, but Moses Montefiore was one of, uh, founded one of, maybe the first, or at least one of the first, was one of the, founded one of the first modern Jewish settlements in the area of Palestine in 1863. Uh, and so as perhaps thinking, again, this is one of the reasons why the, the Zionism becomes a, a, uh, a movement at the end of the 19th century. Jews, you know, in order to prevent their, their legal degradation, they eventually want, you know, uh, put this way, uh, there's a reason why Pius didn't, uh, you know, there, I guess there were, I don't know if there were any Protestants in, in Rome at the time, but uh, if he had tried to, for example, you know, remove a, a British subject, a British kid from a British family, and, and if they'd been, you know, illicitly baptized and raised them as a Catholic, um, the British state would have intervened. Um, that's what having a nation state means. You have, it means you have the means and power to sort of, you know, protect your own citizens that way. Uh, in any case, of course, this was, you know, um, 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 caused this uh, in 18, uh, 1858. So what about the aftermath of all this? Because he refuses, eventually by 1861, this is more or less a closed case, say more or less. Um, well, one thing to note about all this is the grief of the Mortara family. They spent a lot of money, a lot of time trying to recover him. Um, they sought help from uh, Jewish organizations abroad, particularly in Britain. Um, Momolo Mortara went to Britain to enlist the help of organizations there. And in fact, they spent so much time away from their business in, tour, in, uh, in, uh, in Bologna, they actually went under, they actually lost their business. Uh, the family eventually moved after this to Turin uh, in the 1860s. And of course, the next year, um, uh, Cavour got what he wanted. Uh, uh, Piedmont started a second war of independence, defeated the Austrians. This led to revolutions uh, opening up across northern Italy in various places, all of which uh, whose revolutionary governments asked to be annexed to the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia. Um, and so, um, and uh, then in 1860, um, Giuseppe Garibaldi, the, the famous leader, uh, um, um, Revolutionary leader uh, took his expedition of a thousand men to southern Italy, uh, defeats the Kingdom of Sicily uh, in battle, uh, and then as he march is marching toward Rome, um, he's met by Victor Emmanuel II, the King of Piedmont, Sardinia, who can who convinces him not to go to Rome because Rome's protected by uh, France's troops at this point. And so Garibaldi hands over power to Victor Emmanuel, and um, the um, um, the Sicily is united to um, the rest of the governments of Italy. And Italy is turned into a united country, uh, becomes in 1861 uh, the Kingdom of Italy uh, with a liberal sort of constitution, all except uh, Venice and Rome, uh, which Venice will come in 1866. And then finally, a um, few years later, uh, when the French go to fight the Prussians, uh, disastrously speaking, they remove their garrison from Rome. The papacy is basically defenseless at that point. They go into uh, do Italian troops and take the city of Rome in 1870, which, uh, to finish our story, means that, of course, the papal states are no longer uh, in existence, which means that um, the, um, uh, at that point, uh, Edgar Martara, I think he might have been um, well, much older at that point, uh, 18, was of age. Um, he could be, he could leave and go back to his family and go back to Judaism. Um, the uh, Italian government actually offered this, to do this, to remove him from their in fact, one of his brothers, uh, as soon as the Rome fell, went from Turin down to Rome to ask him to rejoin the family, rejoin the Jewish faith, and um, Edgar refused. Uh, he said the best way for them to reunite as a family was for them all to become Catholics. Um, and so he did not go with them. In fact, he remained, and three years later, he became a priest, was ordained, uh, and became, from uh, my all accounts, a very excellent preacher. Uh, he went around um, Europe, in the United States, giving you know sermons. Uh, he kept in contact with his family, by the way. Um, if you don't know, um, there's a, uh, uh, a famous picture of him with his family from the 1870s when he's in his clericals and his parents are next to him. Uh, while he was, by the way, while he went, when it actually was taken, by the way, the Vatican let him come see him. It wasn't like they kept him totally away from them. Um, but even then, after he became a priest, um, when he came through Turin to preach, his family would go listen to him preach. Um, and in fact, he did at one point, um, um, uh, when his mother passed away, went to her funeral. So, 
until the end of his days, and Darrow um, defended Pius IX um, in his memoirs, actually end with his wish that one day he would be declared a saint. Uh, he lives a very long life as well. He dies in 1940. Uh, but this ends the story of uh, Edgar Mortado. So um, the things that this case brings up are, of course, you know, neurologic points in the modern world for us, issues of religious freedom, stuff like this. Uh, and again, I'm not a theologian. I don't want to, you know, uh, put my, my opinion, opinions out there as anything but opinion. Uh, how are we to judge Pius IX in this case? And um, I, I believe very strongly uh, in uh, the necessity of baptism for things like salvation. Uh, I'll never forget my own baptism. I was baptized as an adult. It's an amazing experience. Um, all that being said, it seems pretty clear to me Pius was wrong to do what he did. Um, uh, I don't think Pius acted out of malice or spite, uh, even if I think he may have been acting out, I think I mentioned earlier, he might have been acting out of someone who was losing control and this was a way to assert control and it may be a bad thing if he did that. Um, uh, again, I, I, I think um, um, just in uh, those moral terms, you know, um, it was impossible for Pius to probably think that way. Um, and uh, I, I say this is someone who, by the way, I revere Pius IX. He's revered, by the way, um, one of the reasons why he was beatified in 2000, Pius IX, of course, was the Pope who proclaimed uh, the uh, dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary. Uh, he's also the Pope that in 1870, as the Papal States are being gobbled up by the Italians, um, um, or about to be, um, convened the first uh, Vatican Ecumenical Council, which defined, gave a dogmatic definition to uh, papal infallibility. He's very important to the history of the church. And uh, a lot of people see him, and I do too, as someone who is a defender of the church's teachings and faith against the onslaught of modern ideas and stuff like this. So it's not easy for me to sit here and say, uh, criticize him like this. Um, but it seems pretty clear he did the wrong thing. And I get why uh, priests, uh, Father Cesario, would want to defend him. Um, best you can say is maybe he was well-intentioned, but it did no good, I think, in the end uh, for him. Again, you can say, look, he, you know, like Gar Mortar became a fine priest. You know, God can bring good things out of bad things, but does not give you the right to do the bad things. Um, therefore, um, of course, if I was a, I'm a Jewish person, I'd probably despise uh, Pius IX. That seems fair enough to me. One of the things that it brings up, though, is this problem of baptism and, you know, the whole issue of religious freedom, religious pluralism, stuff like this. Because Pius was opposed to all that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why he is controversial. Um, you know, I don't know about their listening. If you're um, a liberal Catholic, uh, most of the ones I know who are on that spectrum hate his guts. You know, his spies, Pius IX. Um, and partly because he did believe, you know, baptism, being a member of the church was, you know, necessary for salvation. And so it's seen as being, you know, well, this, this age of enlightenment, you know, there can't be, you know, there's no way to know which the true faith is and therefore they're all equal, something like this. He couldn't go for that. Um, and it would, by the way, undermine, I think it would basically make baptism, um, you know, pointless if you did believe something like that. And I'm not saying liberal Catholics believe that, but there's a lot of other things involved. But um, it's a neurologic point for moderns, right, who do not believe, who have a hard time with anything like truth with a capital T, right? Um, and then finally, and you know, not say finally, one of the Pius is a foil for modernity. Uh, again, I don't mean to excuse him at all. I'm not trying to whitewash his record or anything like this, but pretty clear this, 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 in fact, this whole incident probably couldn't have happened except in the in the moment of time that it did in 1858, because the whole issue of you know, um, um, you know, forced conversions become sort of in abeyance, but it was still possible to do it because liberal states were just beginning to get their foothold in Europe, you know, afterwards, you wouldn't have any chance to do this sort of thing. It was very much a, a sort of a, a tough case. And again, it goes back to why I think you need to, if you're a Catholic, condemn what Pius did. You understand wanting to defend the church and his teachings. He picked the wrong case to do it with, this difficult, difficult case. Um, you know, uh, in terms of him uh, being a fool for modernity, um, 
which, uh, and so that's part of the reason we're talking about this here. And again, I, I think we can fairly say the liberals were using this in fairly cynical terms. Again, they hated the guy anyway, and, but anyway, um, um, it's something that's um, um, very much to this day, he's taken as this anti-modern figure. He's still controversial for that reason. And then finally, the issue of his canonization, um, before we get to the Mokara case and the Jewish people, should Pius be canonized? Um, again, you ask, part of the reason, uh, and Kurtzer, by the way, I mentioned David Kurtzer's book, uh, after the kidnapping of Edgar Mortara, he uh, has published several books, highly critical of the papacy. And I say, when I say critical, but I don't mean that as necessarily a bad thing in of itself. He's a fine historian, um, a really good one um, in terms of his scholarship. Uh, but I think he's become very polemical. Uh, he's increasingly blaming, you know, popes for, um, he's gotten in on the Pious Wars. He wrote a book about Pius XII. Wrote a book about Pius XI, one of the Pulitzer Prize, uh, trying to link him to Mussolini and fascism. Uh, he wrote a book called The Papacy Against the Jews, where effectively that distinction between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, he says it's false, but basically wants to blame the papacy for modern anti-Semitism. Um, you know, one of the things about, um, I'm going to labor this too much, canonizations, first of all, are not, we don't make saints. Or uh, church, church doesn't make saints. It recognizes the sanctity of people. And if you're wondering, okay, how can someone be sanct have sanctity if they do so do a bad thing like this? The fact of the matter is, uh, there are lots of saints who didn't li live perfect lives in the history of the church. Um, I can think uh, lots of them uh, who were canonized and they've done pretty horrible things. So that's not necessarily a bar to sanctity. Um, um, but, you know, one of the things that, you know, reasons why Pius is so important, I mentioned, it's weird, they talk about him being anti-modern, you think about it, Catholics, at least in the Western world, Europe, America, places like that, are very divided, like a lot of people are in the Western world at the moment. There's two things that unite them at all, probably two things, be Marian devotion, because most Catholics, even no matter how liberal they are, they, they, they like the Blessed Virgin, right? They like Mary. Uh, of course, Traditional Catholics very much do. Um, another thing would be respect for the papacy, both of which are tied to Pius's actions. Um, he has set the, the tone for the modern church, I think, in some ways. Uh, in any case, um, you can, um, uh, you know, you can, um, um, you can respect and admire Pius without necessarily being totally uncritical of him from that perspective. I think you can also say he's a saint without necessarily with also recognizing he did a, a bad thing here too. Because um, it's not as if he did it. I, I do not believe he did it out of ill will what he did. Um, and uh, um, I had something else in mind. I just told you. my brain, my brain is dead. Uh, it's almost 9.30, my brain's gone. Um, but I, I think that's, that's generally speaking, um, um, you know, um, I think this way. I think one day he will be canonized, but not anytime soon. The controversy is too, um, too, um, um, too deep at the moment. And I should say, I mean, you know, if you and by the way, if you are, if you feel a devotion to Pius the Ninth, what you do is, if you any non-Catholics listening to this, we believe in intercessory prayer. We ask for the inter intercession of saints and holy people. Um, you know, nothing's to prevent you from doing that, even if he's not officially canonized. I myself, I just I said how much I admire him. I've never actually asked for his intercession before, so I'm not probably going to do so now. Um, um, but uh, you know, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with asking for his intercession, whatever, whatever people may think. Um, and now in the Mortara case and the Jewish people. Well, the first thing to note about this, and again, I'm thinking again about that film if it ever comes out. One of the things you need to um, and again, this is tough because the history is so long between the Jewish people and the Christian church and Christians generally. Um, the church, I, I think, obviously has some responsibility for modern anti-Semitism. I don't mean that it's the only thing, but there's no doubt, no question in my mind. Um, um, Jews, wherever they have lived, they have suffered more under officially Christian states and an officially Christian society like in the Middle Ages than they have anywhere else. Um, that peculiar relationship, that almost rivalry uh, coming out of the ancient world between 
you know, uh, Judaism and Christianity, it's, 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 uh, it left a long mark. Um, uh, I say this, by the way, I, I don't, I don't agree with, again, people have blamed the church for the Holocaust. I, I've had my say on this, by the way, my YouTube channel, podcast, you can find, I give it, I talk on the church and the Holocaust. Um, I, I, I reject that for reasons you can go find out about. But uh, things like this, this case, even though it's, again, a latter-day case, a difficult one, um, you know, thinking about this, you know, the church vis-a-vis, you know, um, liberal societies that were trying to take it over in the 19th century and destroy the papal state. The, uh, the reason why uh, the, these, uh, these liberals wanted the, uh, the church gone, well, it's this, it's this medieval relic, right? It's been replaced. Uh, we've replaced it. Uh, the liberal state has superseded it. Um, you know, this is the enlightened idea of enlightenment, right? The enlightenment. Ah, the light of reason has superseded this superstition, right? You think about that, that's the exact same rationale, the idea that the papacy needs to be done away with. This is why we had the right to go, you know, Piedmont Sardinia goes in and occupies by force <laughs> uh, papal territory by right of conquest. They also hold plebiscites, which, you know, they, they, they gain popular uh, support for what they did, but they basically say, hey, we can go take it, we can go take it. Um, but this is in, a, in an outline form, the same rationale for why Jews were always treated as, as subordinate in, uh, in Christendom in the in Middle Ages. Uh, our religion has superseded yours. You rejected the light of Christ, just like the, the church supposedly uh, rejects the light of, light of reason. And therefore, we, we're gonna, you've been superseded. We're going to basically you know, treat you as lesser. And so it's kind of an interesting thing uh, to turn about. Uh, history is in some ways cyclical, uh, comes in a wheel. Um, one other thing to tell people if they ask about this is that the church is infallible in its teaching. Um, that is to say, uh, God has not let it, its teachings uh, fade from this earth. It will not. Jesus Christ is the second person, the Trinity, and the Son of God. Um, that infallibility comes from him to, um, to us by the church and by its ministrations. It is not impeccable. Its members are not impeccable. I can't say this often enough. Uh, I have good, dear friends who are Catholic who have very naive notions of what, for example, the papacy is like. You almost think he couldn't sin the way they talk about it. I can understand. I used to understand, I used to be, again, I'm an adult convert, and I used to get puzzled why these non-Catholics had this bizarre, quasi-magical view of the papacy's powers. I think I know where they got it from, and it wasn't, <laughs> they didn't make it up. Um, the church is not impeccable. And I know it's difficult for people who are very faithful, like I am, church, they love it. Um, it may be painful. It, you must own up to these things. And again, I, I don't say you should apologize for things you haven't done or stuff like that. And, you know, John Paul II had, has tried to, tried to, you know, um, tried to uh, enact what he called the purification memory. He asked for forgiveness. Uh, I'm assuming it's mostly laymen listening to this. You don't have any, you don't have any position to do that. Don't worry about that anyway. Um, there's nothing, you can't change the past now in, in any case, but um, it's something you should acknowledge about the church and not be, you know, uh, not be too defensive about it. It doesn't, it doesn't really change our claims or anything like this. I don't think so. Um, and finally, this one last note on, on Pius and I, observation from observing him. Um, you know, one of the reasons why he's he's uh, well thought of has been well thought of, uh, you in, in, uh, 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 by many people, as he was someone who strove for sanctity. If you're a faithful Catholic, this is one of the things you strive for too. He was very pious, very devout. Even people who strive, who pray a lot, who pray the rosary every day, and who do all the good things, can still do bad things almost unthinkingly. Uh, and in fact, you can be tempted. Um, I'm going this temptations of sanctity again because I'm you know I'm striving for sanctity because I'm part of the, I am part of the body of Christ which is the true the true body the true the true the true Israel all this other blah blah stuff um, I think it gives people the temptation to think that they because they are because we have this great dignity in Christ as being a son of God like through baptism that our supernatural obligations uh, relieve us of natural obligations, um, that we can, you know, violate natural justice because you have been given this. And again, uh, 
this is basically what happened in this case, you know, violating the parents' rights um, because of um, because of you know the most important thing to me, the supernatural race, right? Um, something all of us need to think about, like don't be don't give into the temptation to think you're you're exempt from those things. You're not. Um, um, and if saints can err like that, so can you. So anyway, that's the last thought that I have um, about the Morcara case. If you have any questions, I'm going to post this on YouTube. I'll leave the comments open. You should be able to ask me questions. I'll try to respond. Again, I want to apologize for the uh, problems of the live stream. Um, uh, I'm toying with doing something different next time. I'll let everybody know. Uh, I don't know how to fix the problems. Uh, it keeps freezing. We'll see what happens. Uh, one last uh, note. Um, the final talk I was slated to give will be on May 25th. Um, it's not a, a little less than a month. Next month, last one of the, the, the uh, spring semester for the school year. And that talk will be on um, the promulgation of Humanae Vitae and the controversy that followed it. Um, I'm talking about the origins of the encyclical, why it came out the way it did, why Pope Paul VI issued it, uh, and why why um, it got the reaction that it did. So that's Humanae Vitae, uh, May 25th. Be on the lookout. I'll notify people through Facebook and other means. But uh, thank you all for listening to this. Again, apologies for what happened uh, last time with the uh, with the live feed. Um, so take care, everyone. God bless, and uh, hope I see you next time.